Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Dennis Groob and he's going to be explaining about the civil service. Who do they serve and has it become more politicised over time? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Probably best to start with where the idea of a civil servant comes from. There's a sort of Victorian origin story here. The ideal civil servant comes out of a Victorian notion of what it is to be a public servant. Just just tell us what the ideal is like before we talk about what the reality is like. Like most ideals, uh, the, the sort of myth of the 19th century civil servant has a long and interesting history but remains very much a myth. So we're going back, I suppose, the the great foundation document of the modern civil service is the North Trevelyan Report of 1854 when uh, the then Secretary, uh, Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, Charles Trevelyan, was tasked with looking at how to reform the civil service. Now, he's produced this wonderful report which is still referred to all these years later. If you look at it, It's a 19-page polemic. It's full of politics. It's full of very little evidence and a lot of advocacy. And what he's advocating for is what we would now consider a meritocratic style of civil service and some division in labour between the clerks who are scrawling things down on paper and the uh, more cerebral upper echelons of the civil service who are engaged in policy. And that, that upper level, which is what we're going to focus on, is the idea that these people are apolitical or is it inevitable that they're going to be doing what we would call politics? In my view, it's inevitable that they're going to be doing politics. And interestingly, there is nothing in the Northcote Trevelyan report that says the civil service will be apolitical. Charles Trevelyan himself is an extraordinarily political player. He wrote whilst he was supposed to be dealing with the Irish famine crisis as uh, secretary. He wrote a book about how well he was dealing with the Irish famine crisis, which was not a universal view even at the time. No, that didn't work. (laughs) I mean, not for lack of effort on his part in terms of uh, spreading the word of his book. So, you know, he sends this, this sort of stuff out to everybody in the British body, politic, and even across to the continent. So he embodies a very sort of proactive public style of civil servant, even whilst his report is held up because of its emphasis on meritocracy, which, you know, at least rhetorically, he very much was strong on. Because I think there's probably an impression that then builds through the 20th century that even if these senior civil servants are playing an influential political role, it is meant to be behind the scenes. So, you know, the other ideal type of the civil servant is the yes minister version, the Sir Humphrey version, if we take the story forward. Again, clearly very political, has an agenda, wants to not just get things done, but more or less get the decisions that he wants. But it's 
absolutely not for public viewing. It's behind the scenes. So how do we get from the, the sort of flamboyant Victorian civil servant who's out there spreading the word to the Sir Humphrey? I guess slowly is one answer to that. So as ever, there are a series of reports across that sort of 150-year time frame, I guess, up to the 21st century. So the Haldane report in the early 20th century emphasises things like the indivisibility of the civil service and the executive arm of government. So civil servants report to ministers, ministers are accountable to the parliament. And buried within that is the idea, well, that means civil servants are not seen, they are not heard, and they are fully non-partisan in terms of their public stance, their public engagement. And that is the sort of classic, I suppose, picture of the Sir Humphrey-style Mandarin. There's a very famous, you know, <laughs> I say famous, but in a very small uh, circle, work called Portrait of a Profession, written by Bridges in, I think, 1950, which sort of sketches out this picture of the, the heavily engaged but quietly backroom operating style Mandarin that um, sort of dominates the tradition and conventions of how the civil service should operate. That kind of civil servant, so that they serve the minister, the minister serves the parliament, the parliament serves the public, so it's quite a few removes that they serve the public. Yet the joke of the Sir Humphrey version of it is that actually the civil service always has its own agenda. And in in all of these departments, there is a civil service view, which is often not the government view. Now, presumably that is true, right? Up to a point, that is always true. that There there is a civil service view as well as these people being servants. I would argue certainly. I mean, civil servants are uh, active, thoughtful, interested, engaged human beings just as much as politicians are. And the idea that there is an iron boundary line, if you like, between administration and policy and indeed politics. I think it's a convenient constitutional myth that enables this system of government to work. What's changed, I think, is that by pulling civil servants more into the public domain, there is an opportunity for a perception that they are being influential, when in reality they have always been influential. They have always had a strong view about particular policies which they would communicate in the back room to ministers uh, in a frank and fearless way and leave it to ministers to then decide well which of these pieces of advice shall I take. So if we do bring it up to the present and this is the theme of this conversation that these highly political figures are now more visible so it's not that they're more political but they're more visible but there are sort of two types of critiques that come with that. We'll use Brexit and Trump as our examples here because this is where the politics is. So there is a complaint now that civil servants are being kind of wheeled out in front of the public to make a case that the civil service has been politicised. So you heard that before the Brexit referendum, that civil servants or at least the documents that they produced were being used to make a particular case. So there's an argument that they've they've been politicised by the government. There's another argument, which is when these people appear in public, they're pushing their own political views. So after the referendum, you then get the kind of Ollie Robbins or whatever critique, that it's not that they've been politicised, but they are themselves pushing a political view which goes against. I mean, I do kind of feel in the Brexit case, you can't have it both ways. It can't be that it's it's both that the civil service has been politicised by the government and then is steering the government in a particular direction. So your case would be the underlying reality hasn't changed, but the perception, because it's so much more visible, is that we're seeing it now. 
definitely the perception angle is a big shift, but I think it is the tip of three sort of big shifts that are happening. So number one, I would summarize as changing from governing in private to governing in public. You know, there are all sorts of forces from the 24-7 media to social media to appearing in front of select committees that are pushing and pulling civil servants more into the public domain. That doesn't mean that they're suddenly Beyonce and, you know, you recognise them in the, in the supermarket and, and say, oh, my goodness, I've just seen <laughs> Ollie Robbins in the supermarket. But it does mean that their actions are open to a type of public scrutiny that they weren't before. That shift has then run into this hyperpartisan modern environment. Part of the hyperpartisan modern environment is also the insertion of more special advisors into the system and less forgiving styles of interaction between ministers and civil servants. How is it forgiving before? Who is forgiving whom? If the theoretical system worked well, then ministers are accountable for the mistakes that happen in their departments or not. And whilst you might suggest in a very nuanced way it's not all your fault, that's very different to hauling your civil servants into the uh, public spotlight essentially to excoriate them yourself, which occasionally is now creeping in, to sort of shift the the blame as part of the blame game that comes with hyper-partisan modern politics. That's the world then of Brexit and Trump that the civil servants have then walked into. And you're quite right that there are two sides to this. So one side is that civil servants become politicised by being too close to the government of the day and are seen as just another political messenger. So there's a Canadian academic, the late Peter O'Coin, he coined a phrase, promiscuous partisanship, which is this idea that really you are acting as partisans for the government of the day and then you'll do the same thing for the next government, even if it's a different party. So you're out there pushing the message, pushing the line. And the other side of that then is, well, what do you do if the government of the day is holding you responsible for something, is pushing you out and saying it's your fault? Do you stick to civil service tradition and quietly sit in the background, carry the blame, as it were? Or do you start to push back a little? And with the dangers that that brings of politicising your position, but I would argue you can still do that without becoming a partisan. There's a distinction to be made between partisanship and engagement with the policy environment of the day. And before we talk more specifically about Brexit and Trump, if we're going to compare the American and the the Westminster systems. So the American system is inherently more partisan anyway. It always has been, right? The idea of, of a civil servant it's much more closely tied to the executive, partly because the executive simply has the power to hire and fire on a far greater scale. You don't get, when we get a new prime minister in this country, they don't bring in a raft of thousands of uh, civil servants in their wake. But in the United States, you do get a version of that. Has the American system always, in a way, been more openly partisan? I mean, I think there's still the case that the hyper-partisanship now presents these problems. But was there always an understanding on the American model that it's going to be politicized in ways it's not meant to be here? I mean, I would characterise the American model as much more combative by instinct. So yes, because with each new presidential administration, thousands of senior positions sweep into post. Washington literally kind of clears out one lot and and the other lot move in, yeah. Exactly so. And 
openly because of political connections to the incoming administration. So that is a clear point of connection. But the interesting thing, of course, is that once you're in office, what's called the Hatch Act in the United States, 1939 piece of legislation, specifies that you can't then be overtly partisan in how you then carry out that office which is a sort of an interesting line of distinction. So yes, we're appointing you essentially because you're a partisan, but then you have to embody a different style of politics and policymaking once you're in the role. That said, the combative element I think comes because the style of accountability is very different to Westminster system ministerial accountability. Did that come in in 1939 because people thought that Roosevelt had politicised that the New Deal had politicised the entire machinery of government. Is that what it was a reaction to? It was sort of the elements of the Democratic Party that were more conservative at the conservative end. And yes, they were uh, keen to restrain some of what Roosevelt was doing. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So in the Brexit case, we'll come on to Trump in a second, but in the Brexit case, do you think it is fair to say in in that history that you've sketched where, you know, there's nothing new under the sun here, Twitter is new, but what's going on behind the scenes, there's a familiar pattern to it. Do you think that the civil service was politicised by the referendum? Do you think that the critique that something new happened here has some weight to it? I'm not convinced of that argument. I've clearly read and thought about that argument to a great extent. But the idea that a country can go through an enormous constitutional ruction and that the civil service, which is an indivisible part of the executive government of the state, can somehow play no part in that whilst playing its full part in that, it's it's simply not tenable that the civil service could have in any way removed itself sufficiently as to inoculate it against that line of argument. Given that the choice was between the status quo and something new and to a certain extent unknown, presumably civil servants and the civil service has a bias in favour of the status quo usually. I mean, this also arises with the Scottish independence referendum. If civil servants are going to say something in public about the possibility of radical constitutional change, isn't there going to be an inherent tendency to come out on the side of the way things are now. Certainly, I think that's how it was perceived by people. And one argument might be that's not a politicised civil service, that's just a civil service. Civil servants are trained to be evidence-based. Inevitably, if you've got a system in place, the evidence will be there to support what's happening now. So I don't characterise those interventions as political interventions. I characterise them essentially as joining in the public debate to the extent of saying, here is some more information for everybody to consider when we're determining whether or not it's a good idea for Scotland to leave the Union or for the UK to leave the EU. 
In the Scottish case, the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, Sir Nick McPherson, played a pretty prominent role too. And in some ways, I think actually there's more of a legacy of anger around that, partly because we might be coming around to this again. And also in that case, because we've got a currency question and there are questions about the relationship between the UK government or the Westminster government and this future government, where these civil servants, they will decide it to a certain extent. Um, do you think this, the Scottish one is actually the one that, where there is more danger that this line gets crossed, that it does look more overtly political? I mean, that is clearly a danger, and the the public administration committee that looked into Sir Nicholas's advice during that referendum certainly was not particularly complimentary of the approach that he had taken, so there is some disquiet about that, and yet, at the same time, I keep coming back in my mind to the question, is this partisan, or is this a putting of evidence-based advice into the public domain? And yes, it might be inconvenient. It might make people uncomfortable. It might not be what you want to hear. It will allow all sorts of perceptions to be placed upon the individual involved and the organisation, the institution that he represents. So there are dangers in it, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't happen. Do you think there's a difference between, say, a Treasury report before the Brexit referendum with some facts and figures saying that this, to our best guess, is what might happen to the British economy in this scenario, and a named individual writing a newspaper article and crossing over, I suppose, into the op-ed world? Because there's more of that going on too, right? The possibility of senior civil servants voicing opinions, not just facts. Are these different? I think they are. And, you know, I would characterise it as the difference between proactive and reactive engagement. So if you are sort of thrust into the uh, public limelight because the Prime Minister has asked you to investigate uh, something like the Plebgate example in Jeremy Hayward's time, when you've been tasked with something, it's going to be controversial and you just have to get on with it. You know, writing an an op-ed piece is very much a choice that... You do not need to engage in. An interesting example was Jeremy Hayward when he was Cabinet Secretary and Bob Kerslake when he was head of the civil service wrote a piece when Margaret Thatcher died. It was an opinion piece in the Daily Telegraph and it was designed, according to the authors, to essentially be an insight into the human side of Margaret Thatcher. So here is an incredibly big figure in British politics at the moment of her passing Is it or is it not appropriate to reflect on her as a human being and her legacy? There was a lot of criticism from the opposition in particular that this had uh, crossed the line. But again, if you read the article, it wasn't overtly partisan. It was certainly political. And the, the issue is that it wasn't necessary. So it's a proactive choice to get involved rather than a reactive, you're being pulled in when you, when you have no choice. And then the other thing that I, I'm guessing all government departments have now, along with reports that they issue and maybe individuals making public statements, is they have a kind of communication strategy. So like you say, in the age of 24-7 news, particularly social media and Twitter and so on, I mean, this is not the Victorian model, that you're also somehow meant to be in the communications game. You're meant to be putting the best face on the stuff that you're doing. So that is new, isn't it? I mean, the idea that a government department would have its own Twitter feed. I think that is new and it changes the game slightly. So, you know, if we cast our minds back two decades, essentially, you would not be able to discover who is the head of MI6. 
And these days, the head of our security agencies might go to Berlin and give a public speech around the security problems facing the EU and the world more broadly. Uh, and would MI6 then tweet the link? Uh, the, I, does, does MI6 have a... <laughs> I must admit, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know... Uh, I mean, the Department for Transport does, right? And, I mean, the, the Treasury does, does it? Does the Treasury have a... Yes, the Treasury has a Twitter account. Instagram? Instagram, I, I couldn't swear to. But, you know, there is this sense that being a modern leader means you have a public face that you construct and you project in the same way that you would if you were the head of, you know, BHP or Microsoft or something else, because you are telling the world something about your organisation, which means you have to take a public face. Now, that, the problem with that is under our system, ministerial accountability the minister is the public face so we're sort of we're breaking with that tradition and then we sort of have to live with the consequences of that by working out well how do we then work because that word leader i mean that is not a word that people would often associate with so to be head of a of the civil service bit of a government department so clearly it is a leadership role it's an hr role it's a management role it's a communications role it's an opinion forming role but I don't think, in conventional political language, it's a leadership role. But you're saying it is. I think if it does all of those things that you have just enumerated, how can it not be a leadership role? You know, to cling to the idea that it does all of those things whilst remaining some kind of traditional civil service backroom role, I think is quite clearly untenable. You could say that there's another question here, which goes beyond civil servants taking the evidence and then putting a gloss on it, a personal opinion on it, turning it into an op-ed, which is, in some political context, maybe particularly, say, in the context of a Trump administration, just doing the nuts and bolts of the job, just being a neutral, evidence-based supplier of background information for policy decisions to be made by politicians, that has become political in an age where evidence itself is under attack, explicitly under attack, to be the evidence-based civil service is an affront to some types of political leadership, right? So that's that presumably is just inherently more political now. To, to present the facts about climate change to the Trump administration is a political act. In a way, it might not have been 30, 40 years ago in Washington. I think that's undeniable. The shift, I suppose, is that the golden age, if you like, of evidence-based policy, you know, the kind of Blair, what works type of approach, I think... Did it ever exist? <laughs> I personally am suspicious that it never existed, but at least the sort of rhetorical attachment to it was very strong in that Blair period. I think since the global financial crisis... Just to say that was also true of the Clinton White House as well. The Clinton White House was a very wonkish White House. I mean, very much so. It's it's the idea of evidence-based policy is very much a third way, that great phrase which we no longer use, way of looking at the world, essentially, is that uh, let's not be bothered by ideology, let's measure and then look at what works and then make that work. I think what we forgot in that process is that evidence doesn't speak for itself, data don't speak for themselves, you actually need to interpret them and persuasion is and has always been a part of successful policy making and so this puts some civil servants in a position well 
you have a public face and you've got some interesting evidence or data to add to the process, you feel that that's not being taken into account by the political class, what do you do? So one example of that, and clearly in this example, it's in relation to an arm's length body, but the UK Statistics Authority, 2017, Sir David Norgrove, you'll recall the then Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson wrote an opinion piece in the Daily Telegraph, reviving the wonderful figure of £350 million. And yes, we could return this to the NHS. The head of the UK Statistics Authority wrote him a short letter suggesting this was a misuse of official statistics. And this short letter happened to find its way into the public domain. Uh, Well, you say happened. Um, This is why it's such an example of what I'm talking about is it was released through the official Twitter handle of the UK Statistics Authority. It was designed to be a publicly facing document. It's clearly stating a very strong authoritative view from a non-partisan civil servant. Now, clearly, as an arm's length public body, you have much more leeway to publicly hold the government to account. But it puts you in the position of being in the middle of a political debate where you then have to manage the the perceptions that that flow along with that. And you're quite right that in, in the Trump era in the US, the sort of pressure that's been put on various agencies that have anything to do with climate change, a chap by the name of George Luber, who uh, until recently was the head of the climate program at the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, He was in the news a few weeks ago because essentially he's been moved sideways. They've removed the word climate from from his role. And then he's, you know, appearing in public to defend the right to use evidence-based terminology about particular policy issues. Just doing that is, you're quite right, a form of political act that will encourage perceptions of people to say, well, the, the civil service is crossing a line it shouldn't be disagreeing with the president of the day but that's part of that public sphere debate that sort of governing in public mode that we're currently in and someone like James Comey from the FBI is just at the you know at the extreme end of that spectrum. The other thing that goes on in that context is then on both sides there's this thought that possibly within the civil service there's now what's called a resistance that actually this can go beyond the politicization of civil servants advice to subversion through these organizations so that's both in some ways the fear the trump people fear that the deep state the administrative state is subverting the trump agenda and it's the hope the people who want this agenda to be subverted hope that right thinking in their mind civil servants might do it is there anything to that on either side do you have any sense either in this country but particularly in the united states that it's meaningful to talk about the civil service as now being a site of resistance to elected governments? Well, I think we would need to unpack the term resistance to some extent here. I imagine there would be very few presidents over the last four decades that if we asked them, do you feel that there is resistance to lines of policy that you're pushing, that they would say, oh, oh no, it's, it's, it's all very smooth. We're one united team and we're pushing forward. Resistance is a part and parcel of government because government is not just one unifying force, one voice from the top, and Trump says something and, and the world flows along with it. Government is a collection of institutions and histories and organisations, all of which 
have their own agendas and beliefs. And whilst you can serve in uh, the best spirits of nonpartisanship, try and be apolitical and impartial in your advice, that does not mean that there isn't an alternative view. That's what Frank and Fearless advice is all about, is putting an unpopular view. So in a way, that's friction. There's a sort of spectrum from friction on one side to kind of Second World War French resistance, resistance on the other. There is both a fear and a hope from some people that you get closer to Second World War French resistance, resistance. That's asking too much, right? I personally think it's... Sabotage. (laughs) Well, uh, let let me rephrase. I don't think from what I can see and what I read that the level of resistance is a French resistance style of resistance and if it is then it has always been so. When any administration comes in either in the US or here there will be elements within the various arms of government that don't like the agenda that's being put forward and those different elements depending on who's in government will try and push and pull and persuade as much as they can to prevent something that they don't like. So if we were to get a Corbyn government and the Corbyn government started to claim that the civil service was essentially resisting its agenda, you would say, get over it. This is how the world works. I think all the evidence suggests that's exactly how the world works. You know, uh, Tony Blair, of course, famously talking about scars on my back and, and how hard it is to make change. And yet you don't then see a conservative government come in and say, oh, thank goodness we've got this wonderful civil service. Inherently conservative civil service. It's like the BBC, right? The BBC always seems to be the barrier to the government of the day. Yeah. That's how you know it's doing its job. I suspect so. If the government of the day thinks you are incredibly onside and doing an extraordinary job, then I, I would be concerned that that level of pushback of frank and fearless advice isn't there regardless of whichever party is actually in government, if that is the consistent view, you are probably doing your job, which is to help shape and challenge what the, what the government does. Dennis Groob's new book is called Megaphone Bureaucracy, Speaking Truth to Power in the Age of the New Normal, and we will tweet the link. We want to let you know about an event that we're doing in October. We're actually doing a series of live events, and we'll give details on the others soon. But for this one because we think tickets might go fast. We're going to be talking to Rory Stewart on the 29th of October. That is two days before you know what, if you know what happens. It's going to be near the Palace of Westminster. It's going to be open to Talking Politics listeners to get their tickets first. It's in the evening. And if you go to lrb.me forward slash Talking Politics, you will find a link and find out how you can come and hear me and Helen talking to Rory Stewart about Brexit. We have three more guides to come over the next couple of weeks, but there's a brief interlude. Our next episode is going to be a conversation between me and Jill Lepore, one of our favourite ever Talking Politics guests. We're discussing nationalism in the United States and also in Brexit Britain. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 